1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in African-American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jared Piketty, and I'm thrilled to be joining the New Books in African-American Studies series. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Professor Elise Eve Weinbaum, a professor of English at the University of Washington, to discuss her newest book, The Afterlives of Reproductive Slavery, Biocapitalism and Black Feminism's Philosophy of History, published by Duke University Press in 2019. Joining a steady stream of new scholarship investigating the centrality of sexual violence to the institution of Chateau slavery in the Western Hemisphere, although going a step further to consider the ideological legacies of racialized reproductive practices in the present, the afterlives of reproductive slavery investigates Atlantic slavery's reflection in and refraction through the cultures and politics of human reproduction that characterize late 21st century capitalism. The book argues that racial slavery lives on through a racial and economic calculus, or slave episteme, and that Black feminists produced in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, which constitutes a specifically Black feminist philosophy of history that reveals reproductive slavery's afterlife. Welcome to the show, Professor Weinbaum, and thank you so much for finding the time to sit down with me to discuss your magnificent new book.
2: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
1: So as you know, every book or piece of scholarship has a history of its own. And before we dive directly into the many nuances of your new book, I thought it best to begin by discussing how you yourself became interested in these research topics and how you came to write The Afterlives of Reproductive Slavery.
2: So, you know, this book is connected to a longstanding inquiry for me um, about the relationship between ideas of race And racialization and processes of reproduction, human reproduction. And I have been working on this stuff since I was an undergraduate uh, student. And I think it came out of an interest, a feminist interest in um, reproductive justice issues and anti-racism and it sort of uh, began as an interest in contemporary reproductive politics and anti-racist politics, and then slowly became my academic work over time. And so my first book um, is called Wayward Reproductions, and it's about the idea of race and reproduction as it exists in transatlantic modern thought. And the main idea in that book is this idea that the reproductive body in modernity is understood to be a fount of uh, racial identity um, and of racial formation. So families and nations, and that um, this idea of the maternal body or the reproductive body has formed the basis for all kinds of problematic ideologies. Uh, including modern nationalism. And I make an argument that race and reproduction are, are sort of bound together. And so, you know, in that book, I was looking at modern thought systems like Marxism and evolutionary theory, psychoanalysis, and, and first wave feminism, black radical traditions, black radical internationalisms. Um, but I didn't get as heavily into capitalism as I wanted to. Um, and so this book is really um a second installment in a very long thought process about race and reproduction and it's meant to really take up this question of how race and reproduction come together or are bound together in capitalism over its long durée and and in the context also of what you know uh some scholars call racial capitalism so a kind of capitalism that um has uh, racism at its very
1: uh, core. And you certainly had your work cut out for you with this book. And it, to me, it was truly remarkable to consider all of the interventions that were made in the afterlives of reproductive slavery across so many different interdisciplinary fields that many of which you just alluded to, among them racial capitalism, the history of slavery and capitalism, Black feminist theory, and you know more recently, study, studies of slavery and capitalism. But I was hoping you could briefly discuss the interventions you set out to make with this book when you began writing it and how your ideas evolved as you researched and wrote the book itself.
2: I guess I uh, thought I was making a couple different interventions and into different fields, um, but they're all interconnected. One of them was... um, a sort of account of how we got where we are, so how is it that we live in a world in which the reproductive labor process, women's in vivo, reproductive labor is extracted and sold, and reproductive products are sold on the market alongside other products. What's the history um, of this current moment, and how can we find its roots in the in the slave past and in the culture of slave breeding? Um, in the context of Atlantic slavery. So one question was about in vivo reproductive labor and its exploitation over time and the extraction of of commodities from the reproductive body over time. And another question was about how to think um, the connection between Disparate historical moments. So, how do we understand the connection between what I would call biocapitalism, our current moment in which life itself is commodified, and that 400 years of chattel slavery in the Americas and the Caribbean? Um, What's the relationship between these two? So, that was another animating question. And, um, you know, at the center of that was what has happened to the reproductive body over time, to the reproductive process in slavery, the reproductive process is a racializing process that produces commodities. And um, it dawned on me that in the contemporary moment, it is also a racializing process that produces commodities. So how how can we um, bridge this? And then that took me into this discussion about Black feminism, because as I researched this more and more, I began to feel that my fellow travelers were black feminist scholars um, writing in a number of different idioms. So historians, but also um, legal scholars and social scientists, and then literary scholars and and writers, um, so creative writers, who were all in different ways um, using a Black feminist lens to think these connections between the slave past and the contemporary moment of writing. And so then it became, over time, also an inquiry into a genealogy of Black feminism and its treatment of the question of human reproduction.
1: One of the most striking elements, I think, of your book is the way in which you and that you refer to throughout it as the constellation between the the, bio, the slave breeding past and the biocapitalist present, um, which I'm happy to discuss with you further in a few minutes. But as historians, we're often cautioned to avoid the, the presentist pitfall, if you will, in our scholarship, Al- although it's certainly undeniable that our political consciousness and decision to pursue particular areas of historical research are informed by our present moment in the world around us. And so in the introduction of the afterlives of reproductive slavery, I really liked the quote that you borrowed from Walter Benjamin, the phrase of the time and the now, and that your book truly is a, a meditation on the past as much as it is, it is about the present. And so I found the connections that you draw between the commodification of human reproductive labor and reproductive power across four centuries of Chateau slavery, and again, in the 21st century to be so incredibly thought provoking. Um, so as a forewarning, this is kind of a multi-part question, so I'll do my best to go go to each of the questions one by one for the sake of clarity. But before, before we begin, could you define for the listeners what the slave episteme is and the ways in which you deploy it throughout your book?
2: So um, the concept of the slave episteme is one that I develop to talk about the thought system that is passed down from chattel slavery into the present moment, so how it travels in and with capitalism over time. And that slave episteme um, has as at its core um, the notion that the Black woman's womb is a source of uh, commodities, both in the form of reproductive labor power, um, but also in the form of uh, chattel and uh, children. And so the the idea there is that the idea that the womb itself could be a source of commodities is the slave episteme. And that idea is one that is really invented and elaborated in the crucible of Atlantic slavery. And so the concept of episteme is one that really comes out of um, Foucault and people that think about a Foucauldian framework for thinking certain questions about history, and it's it's a concept that t- he usually uses it to talk about the modern episteme, but it's it's that sort of whole um, array of ideas that are bound together in complex ways um, to, to uh, create and characterize the thought system of a historical moment. And I'm trying to suggest that that thought system is transferable across time. But, of course, the way that we think about things is also – uh, always informing the way in which they are materialized, <laughs> and so the slave episteme is both a, an epistemic concept or conceptual and philosophical ideological concept, but it is also um, uh, materialized through the practice of
1: extraction of reproduction. Sure, and it to me, I thought I found one of the um, critiques that you make of Foucaultian analysis in the ways in which it somewhat turns a blind eye to race. And by you know building on the scholarship of individuals like Mmembe and Wehaley, you are able to really demonstrate that race and r- racial the racialization of reproductive labor itself is at the center of conversations of biopower that individuals like Foucault themselves aren't always attuned to in their own thinking and writing.
2: Exactly. That's it. You said it. I mean, so another piece of the book, another theoretical intervention the book makes is um, in solidarity with the work of Black studies scholars and um, postcolonial scholars who have sought to centralize um, the the racial um, dimensions of, um, of biopower and to recognize the ways in which those fall out of the um, Foucauldian uh, theorization of biopower and the ways in which they need to be restored to make the concept relevant for contemporary analysis.
1: Do you remember the, the kind of the aha moment that we sometimes have uh, when you came up with the conceptual framework of the slave of and when you came to realize that many of these exploitative reproductive processes rooted in racial slavery had resonance in modern day biocapitalist practices?
2: Um, I don't know that I can say that there was exactly one moment. It was kind of a a gathering over time of, of thoughts um, and thought fragments. But I think that the problem that brought me to that solution was the realization that, um, it was a thought system that was transferred over time and not an exact replication of slavery per se. And so what we have in the current moment isn't the continued exploitation of the Black woman's body as the source of um, commodities and of capital and of surplus value. What we have is the continued animation of the idea that a body can be racialized in order to be exploited for its reproductive potential. And so it's about tracking ideas that have material consequences, as opposed to saying that Contemporary biocapitalism and slavery are the same thing, because um, I'm definitely not saying that. I am not trying to say that there was slavery then and there's a form of disguised slavery now. I'm trying to say that there's a way of thinking about the reproductive body, about racialization, processes of racialization and of reproductive extraction um, in the context of racial capitalism that endures even as it morphs over time.
1: I found also that aside from you know an excellent interdisciplinary examination of reproductive labor across American history, and also more recent studies of you know feminist studies of biocapitalism, that the afterlives of reproductive slavery is truly an intell- a work of intellectual history, um, and so so much of your book is. And the argumentative thrust of your book is steered by a number of terms and conceptual frameworks. And so for viewers who are less versed in this field or who have not yet read your fantastic book, would you mind defining the concept of biocapitalism as alluded to in the subtitle of your book and how you engage it in your scholarship more broadly?
2: Mm -hmm. So that concept of of biocapitalism really comes out of um, recent work over the last decade and a half by folks in the social sciences who have been looking at the ways in which capitalism has commodified life itself. They're thinking about um, the commodification of DNA and the thing of DNA. They're talking about the rise of big pharma. They're talking about um, the commodification of stem cells and then eggs and sperm. And uh, for feminists working uh, on the question of biocapitalism, they're talking about the commodification of things that are much more fleshy, like babies, vital organs, the organ trade, and then in vivo reproductive labor. So surrogacy. And uh, so it's a term that can actually encompass all of these things and potentially more as um, technology allows for the extraction of the body in new ways. And it's essentially a way of talking about um, capitalism that understands that the bio prefacing capitalism, the biological, has become a domain of um, of. Of extraction, which it has always been, but really understanding the robustness of that in the contemporary moment. One of the arguments that I make in the book is actually that slavery is a form of biocapitalism, although it's only in retrospect that we can apply that label
1: to it. For listeners who um, are often confronted by the notion that slavery was an antecedent to capitalism, you make a very forceful argument against this line of thinking, and I think. New scholarship on the history of slavery and capitalism that is coming out in the present day is is really attacking this notion that slavery was you know a precedent to industrial capitalism as we know it today and so if you would could you kind of dissect this argument and the ways in which you critique traditional Marxist frameworks about slavery and specifically the role of biocapitalism in the you know uh, larger question of the ways in which capitalism came to be bound up so heavily in the exploitation of women's reproductive labor, specifically enslaved women?
2: Okay, I think there's probably two parts to that question. One of them, I think, is about um, Black Marxism as a framework and about a notion that um, capitalism has always been um, a racializing uh, economic system that depends on um, processes of racialization to um, denigrate laboring bodies and extract value from them. And that's the case, obviously, in slavery with the production of blackness, but it's the case in in other capitalist formations as well. And that corrective to to the traditional Marxist analysis, which sort of sees race as simply um, incidental or one- instrument among many that might be used to make capitalism go what black Marxists have argued and I'm talking about people like Cedric Robinson but others as well um, is 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 to really uh, make the claim that that races and racism are constitutive to the process of capitalism and so within that um, line of argument you cannot separate off slavery as something that, um you know comes as a, a pre-emergent formation before capitalism proper but you're really beginning to recast slavery and Eric Williams the historian was one of the first to do this to really recast uh slavery as um an originary moment of primitive accumulation um for ca- racial capitalist processes and so it's a it's a it's a different um historiography um and it's a different uh temporal account of, um, of the stages of capitalism and it's an insistence on um, the foundational connection between um, processes of racialization and capitalist extraction. And so um, I do think that while you say there's resistance or I, I don't I'm not sure that's the word you use, what word did you use um, that there's resistance to the notion of slavery as a capitalist institution?
1: Or in terms of the temporal, the the development of industrial capitalism in the American economy and the economic Mm. sense of it being a very early 19th century phenomenon, and then the ways in which scholars, including Jennifer Morgan, Sasha Turner, and others who study enslaved women's experiences in the wider Atlantic world, have demonstrated that the exploitation of enslaved women's bodies, both for their productive and for their reproductive labor, were as you just alluded to so eloquently, precisely these forms of primitive accumulation that individuals like Williams and um, Cedric Robinson mm-hmm. discuss, although they're not directly speaking to one another, these historiographies often seem. And which is another one of the interventions I think that your book makes is that the scholarship of Black feminists is not often conceived of, or you know, put uh, understood to be. Um, a part and parcel, if you will, of the black radical tradition. And so the ways in which reproductive labor has escaped the purview of scholars of slavery and capitalism, I think, is one of the uh, elements of your book that scholars who are interested in these subjects will find very enlightening about it.
2: Yeah, thank you. I mean, I I think that's exactly it. Um, You know, it's an intervention, a feminist intervention into how we understand the black radical tradition, which has typically um, left out the gendered component of the analysis or the reproductive component of the analysis of racial capitalism, um, the ways in which slave breeding was at the center of slavery. Uh, as a system, which is an argument that Sasha Turner and Jennifer Morgan make, as you point out, in which um, the more masculinist interventions into the um, the theory that comes under the label sometimes of Black Marxism um, don't make. Um, so, so there's the feminist intervention, but then there's also just the Black Marxist intervention, which is why it's really a two-part question, um, which is just that really Um, deep understanding of the racial logic of capitalism over its entire history. And so I'm going with the black Marxist tradition in that regard, and then I'm critiquing it alongside feminist historians and others who have done the important and and really groundbreaking work of understanding the ways in which uh, slave breeding and slave women's reproduction was really uh, at the very center of the, what Walter Johnson calls slave racial capitalism.
1: So returning to the subject of biocapitalism, in chapter one of your book, you mobilize two really important court, ca- court cases. Uh, in order to help your book's readers situate the contested history of surrogacy practices and the ways in which these cases spurred black feminist scholars and black feminist legal scholars more specifically, to begin considering the relationship between slave breeding in the past and surrogacy in the present. So I was wondering if you could walk our listeners through these two cases and contextualize how Black feminist responses to them informed the notion of reproductive labor as a racialized process in the modern era.
2: So um, when surrogacy uh, first really came to public attention in the United States, it was around the Baby M case in the mid-1980s. And the Baby M case was um, a case in which a surrogate uh, who uh, was inseminated with the sperm of the person that had contracted with her to bear a child um, had that baby, gestated that baby and had that baby and then did not want to give up the baby, which became known as Baby M, to the father who had uh, contracted her to uh, engage as a surrogate. And so she, uh, actually absconded with the child and attempted to, uh, maintain custody of the child. But the courts eventually, uh, took that custody away from her and gave it, um, to the, um, the, 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 person that she had contracted with and his wife. So that was one really important surrogacy case, a very dramatic surrogacy case, which brought the question of surrogacy um, as a practice before the American public and kind of made people begin to understand the potentials for exploitation in in the surrogate process, um, the feelings of mothers about having their reproductive labor and products extracted, um, but also the ways in which the legal system could be used to enforce the um, the, the smooth workings of uh, of capitalism. And uh, in those days, in the eighties, um, surrogates received roughly ten thousand dollars for um, for becoming uh, gestating and becoming surrogate mothers and uh, the the lion's share of the profit went to the lawyers uh, who uh, basically organized these contracts. So that case was uh, very important. It was a watershed case. There's very few people that write or talk about surrogacy that don't refer back to the rulings in that case. And then the legal scholarship, which emerged out of it, which came from all quarters and uh, was really oftentimes uh, an argument that divided along two lines. Surrogacy was a liberating practice. It should be something that we uh, found a way to do. It allowed women to enter the labor market in new ways. It was was a social good. And those who really regarded it as a form of exploitation. Um, But it wasn't until Black feminists took up the case and really started analyzing it, um, mostly in legal journals, uh that they made the connection between the practice of surrogacy and the practice of slave breeding um yeah. during the four hundred years of Atlantic slavery. And these legal, um, this legal scholarship, probably the two most well known, would be the work of Dorothy Roberts and um, Patricia Williams. But there were there were actually many, many others, many articles um, on this that really sought to um, to make this connection and to really understand that when Mary Beth Whitehead. Um, refused to turn over her child she was refusing the reproductive extraction um, in a manner that was similar to the ways in which slave women who uh you know attempted to run away with their children or to free their children from from slavery along with themselves were also um objecting to the system of reproductive extraction that bound them so that that's one of the cases Um, would, would you like me to discuss the other one or
1: or yes please
2: so the other the second one comes later in um 1990 and it's uh it's Johnson v Calvert and that case uh is different because by the um by 1990 and by the early 90s the kind of surrogacy that happened in the baby M case was no longer common practice so that was the insemination of a surrogate own egg in her own womb by the sperm of the contracting party. But by the 1990s, almost all surrogate practice had become gestational surrogacy in which any woman's body could be used to gestate an embryo that had been uh, created through um a donated or purchased egg and uh and donated or purchased sperm uh reinserted into the womb and uh ingestated. And, and this meant, of course, for the first time in history, that the Race and genetic profile of the body gestating the child didn't need to bear any relationship at all to the child that was uh, going to come out of this womb. So in Johnson v. Calvert, Johnson, who was a black woman who was also um, uh, American Indian, identified as both, uh, gestated a child for a white man and his Filipino wife, um, and during the course of the pregnancy, again, like Mary Beth Whitehead, decided that she did not want to turn over the child to whom she was genetically unrelated to the parents with whom she had contracted. And um, and she too, when the legal proceedings uh, unfolded, was denied uh, custody of that child who was uh, understood to belong to the contracting parents because uh, they were the owners of the genetic raw materials that comprised that child. And so um, I think that what's so interesting about the second case is we really understand how the Black uh, and native woman's body is turned into literally a reproductive resource, um, that can produce in this case, a white looking child for, uh, an interracial couple that wanted a white looking child, um, with genetic relation to the father. And, and so again, black feminists came in with a really, um, intensive analysis of this case. Um, This case, it was easier to mark out the racial logic because the woman herself identified as a Black woman, but I don't think it was necessary for her to be in a Black body for the racial logic of slavery to be animating the, the case and the question of surrogate extraction. And this is one of the big arguments in my book, which is that reproduction itself, when it's turned into commodified labor, is a Racializing process that racializes um, the the labor power, the body performing that labor, and in complex ways, um, the products of that labor.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.:
1: For me, one of the connections that was so well made in your discussion of surrogacy and its relationship to slave breeding in the past was the notion of partis sequitur ventrum that was used to govern the logic of chattel slavery in the Americas. However, you are very clear to state that this has been practiced throughout slavery in the long durée, if you will, versus a distinctly 17th century phenomenon forward. But it's the notion that the product of, of the women's reproductive labor is alienable from the mother. And that in terms of surrogacy, it's difficult to consider the notion of the, the product of, of, of reproductive, of black, especially enslaved women's reproductive labor itself, that these bodies can be sold and exploited for profits.
2: Yeah. So part of sequitur ventrum is completely, um, uh, key to this understanding of the connection between the slave past and the biocapitalist present. And it's really the doctrine that racializes the slave woman and her property, um, and thus produces the blackness of both of them. And in the process, it renders that slave woman's child, as you say, alienable, but also fungible, um, to be black is to be a living commodity in a sense in the context of slavery, so um, I think that this is the idea of PSV or sequitur ventrum is one of the central um, Uh, pieces of the slave episteme that gets passed down through time. And again, the point is not that it's passed down exactly as it existed in the context of, um, of Atlantic slavery, but it's passed down in as a logic of, of racialization of um, laborer and progeny of in, in vivo reproductive labor and the products of that labor that makes it possible for that product to be both alienable and fungible and for that reproductive labor, gestation, um, and it's so much more than gestation, of course, um, to be both alienable and fungible and so um, those pieces still exist in the practice of contemporary slavery in, in the practice of, of of contemporary biocapitalism and I think it's you know people will make the argument well you know the surrogate is not a slave no the surrogate is 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 not a slave in that sense although when we really get into the um, the details of the contemporary practice of of surrogacy as it exists around the world, the deprivations that force women into surrogacy and the conditions under which they labor as surrogates often look a lot like slavery. Um, but it's not to say that the, the surrogate is a slave, um, but it is to say that there's something about that process um, of gestating a child in, um, for pay, um, that, uh, of turning the womb into, um, part of an extractive reproductive economy that, um, allows that child until it's adopted into the family and, and in a sense humanized, uh, to exist as a commodity that's transferable. And, um, you know, there's a lot of denial that goes in, on in, um, debates, contemporary debates among scholars of surrogacy about, um, how to understand the commodification of the children that are produced by surrogates. Is it the reproductive labor that's commodified or is it the child that's commodified? And I think that's a kind of wrong-headed uh, Question, because I think it's the whole process is saturated by the logic of commodification, and uh, until that child is transferred and moved into um, the context of a family, it is existing as something that uh, that has been produced um, uh, to create surplus value.
1: So I found chapter two to be also incredibly rich, and I would highly recommend it to our listeners who seek a better understanding of enslaved women and their experiences with sexual violence in their day-to-day lives. But in it, you develop your framework of Black feminism's philosophy of history and argue that Black feminist writing in the 1980s and 1990s, but also some in the late 1970s as well, gendered the Du Boisian notion of the general strike against slavery to encompass bond women's insurgency against forced breeding and other forms of sexual assault. And so pausing for a moment, because there are truly so many questions I'd like to ask you about this chapter in particular, I thought it may be productive for you to discuss how late 20th century Black feminists inserted themselves at the center of the Black radical tradition, which historically has been understood in a highly masculinized manner, which we we spoke about very briefly earlier in thinking about the scholarship of individuals like Cedric Robinson and Eric Williams in the context of Black Marxism. But for me, I'm thinking about the ways in which Black feminist writing in this moment were not only engaged with the enslaved past, but were thinking about larger questions of reproductive freedom in the present, and the ways in which the issues over surrogacy and other emergent biocapitalist practices truly informed the writings that they were producing during this time.
2: Yeah, and it's no coincidence that the the sort of heyday of black feminist um, publication across those three decades is really uh, the mid 80s through the early 90s, which is also the period of the emergence of surrogacy and of the bioeconomy as uh, something that was visible and understood and, and began to be analyzed by scholars. And so though, um, feminists, black feminists are not often understood to be theorists of biocapitalism, in some sense, I'm making an argument that they were written by their times and that the, the, the theory, the, um, legal scholarship and the, uh, creative writing, the fiction that they were producing, um, was responsive to this moment of the emergence or, uh, of biocapitalism and therefore the transfiguration of the face of capitalism, uh, in their time. And that as they reached back to slavery, they were doing so in a way that, um, animated that historical inquiry, uh in and for their present moment. And so while sometimes that is explicitly a connection that's made as it is in the scholarship, the Black Feminist Legal Scholarship on surrogacy that we just discussed, in which I discuss in the first chapter of the book, um, for many of these feminists, the connection is is less explicit. And yet there is a way in which um, I'm making an argument that there's a philosophy of history that emerges from this work because it is about connecting the moment of textual production or of, um, uh, activist or, um, or theoretical production, uh, to, um, the, the, the insurgency of slave women. And so I'm writing about a whole different, um, range of of uh, black feminist scholars so it starts with the work on black feminist legal scholars but then it goes to the work of uh, black feminist historians who are exploring and centering the experience of sex and reproduction and slavery and then it it moves from there to um what really in retrospect we've come to call the neo-slave narrative which are all of those novels um that were written that attempted to imagine the world of um, of enslaved women by uh, centering their experiences of sex and reproduction in slavery. And so the most famous of those is, of course, Toni Morrison's Beloved, but there are many others. And then there are texts that, although they're not often understood as neo-slave narratives, I would argue are actually part of that Form of cultural expression. So I'm thinking too of the speculative fiction of Octavia Butler. But if you know, if you want to run out the list of um, Black women writers who were thinking about slavery, you have Shirley Ann Williams and 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 Cooper and um, I mean, there's just a, and Gail Jones, and the list goes on and on. And so there are so many people that uh, in in this moment of, of the 80s and, and 90s are really uh, going into the history of slavery, taking a deep dive through the writing of fiction um, to imagine what it's very hard to capture if you're a historian, because uh, the kind of way to uh, ground those claims is sometimes difficult to locate in available archives, to use the work of creative imagination to fill in that experience. And those, those women too, those creative writers, are, are creating uh, and contributing to what I call a Black feminist philosophy of history. And that term philosophy of history, um, you know, is one that I'm borrowing and then uh, retooling um, out of the work of, of Walter Benjamin.
1: I think in, in conceptualizing this moment when, you know, for as a field African-American women's history came to be, there were substantial methodological changes underway in which, there was less of a qualitative focus on the study of slavery. And in particular, the use of qualitative analysis by scholars like Robert Fogel and Stanley Ingerman to you know, argue against the notion that slave breeding was practiced in any substantial way in the antebellum South, uh, thinking also of John Bull's work on in Black Southerners. But it was the use of WPA narratives by scholars like Deborah Gray White and Jacqueline Jones and other historians who have come after them, including Jennifer Morgan and Sasha Turner, who we mentioned earlier, who were able to really demonstrate that forced breeding was essential to this slave economy, particularly in the post-1807 moment. I'm also thinking of Gregory Smithers' new book, Slave Breeding. Um, and so it's it's interesting for me as a historian to, to hear the names of individuals who I've had the great privilege of working with, but also those whose scholarship continues to guide the questions and the types of research and the methodologies that we employ in our scholarship um, to be thought of and to be credited as theorists in their own right. I think it's a very important intervention that you're making.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I, I love the way you've put that. And and I think it's, you know, understanding Black feminist work uh, across its idioms of expression as part of a large collective project um, to which Black feminist historians made a huge contribution. And all of these things are in a kind of synergy with each other as forms of cultural expression in this period. And I think because uh, you are a historian, you're, you're hearing the impact of this argument for what it means to reclaim the contributions made, um, by w- women that were studying the history of enslaved women in the seventies, eighties, and nineties as theorists, right. Um, who ought to be understood as making a contribution to the black radical tradition, but haven't been. Um, but that I'm, I would say that they are a part of a much larger ground, groundswell of interest in this question. Um, that, and that, because all of these people were reading each other's work and understanding each other's work and in, in some ways working across idioms, even if they didn't talk about those different disciplines or idioms in their own writing, uh, it was all mutually informing and creating this, um, this new way of thinking that we now have inherited.
1: And to kind of return to this notion of the kind of the interdisciplinary dialogue and conversations that were being had among Black feminist scholars during this time, I think that your book also demonstrates that women beyond history, thinking of Hazel Carby, Sadia Hartman, and other literary scholars who invoke uh, or utilize a Black feminist um, framework in their scholarship and thinking about the writings of Black women, fictional writings, but also autobiographical writings as well, to expand the notion of slavery's archive to also encompass works of fiction, film, and other literary mediums. And so in chapter three of The Afterlives of Reproductive Slavery, you foreground the use of what you call critical speculative engagement as a tool to constellate the enslaved past and the biocapitalist present. And so as mentioned just a few moments ago, as a historian, there are so many scholars of enslaved women like Nell Painter and Dar- Darlene Clark-Kine, Marisa Fuentes, Erica Armstrong-Dunbar, and others who have had to rely on this tool this as a methodological insight into the worlds of women who are so archivally illegible. And so put simply, there really are some things we may never know about enslaved women's lives. But by utilizing this very interdisciplinary approach to their to their scholarship and the questions that they're asking, you, you're able to demonstrate that critical speculative engagement is necessary for retooling or reconstructing rather the lives of enslaved women in the past. And so... In chapter three, I really enjoyed your close reading of Toni Morrison's uh, classic novel, Beloved. And while many literary critics and scholars have convincingly suggested that the novel's protagonist, Sethe, was inspired by Margaret Garner, a woman who murdered her child to avoid a lifetime of enslavement in 1856, you speculate that the inspiration for Sethe's character was inspired by the experiences of another more contemporary insurgent African-American woman. And so I'm hoping you could discuss who she was and if you could tell us more about her story.
2: Sure. So it's Joan Little. And, um, you know, this is a woman that was at the center of debates about, um, women's right to self-defense in the context of, um, assault and violence. And she was a, a black woman who was, uh, uh thought to be the the murderer of her jailer um, who attempted to rape her when she was imprisoned. And she, um, you know, became a sort of cause celeb who uh, many people rallied around to suggest that when uh, women, especially women of color, were sexually assaulted, they had the right to self-defense. And so I make a connection between... um, Joan Little and Margaret Garner, but also the character of Setha in Morrison's Beloved, because I became aware um, through a really wonderful story um, of the connection in Morrison's mind between uh, what she was learning about the Joan Little case um, and what she was doing while she was writing uh, Beloved. And she actually um, places into the hand of, of Setha when she makes her insurgent attack against the white man who she mistakes as the slave catcher. Um, she attacks him with an ice pick. And of course this was the weapon of choice. Um, the weapon, the only weapon available to Joan Little in prison um, when she uh, attacked her jailer. So, You know, I'm trying to create um, those bridges or those constellations, to borrow Benjamin's term, of past and present, um, not just in the way in which the novel has um, most often been interpreted, which is as a rewriting of Margaret Garner case, an actual historical case of a slave woman committing infanticide in order to free her child from recapture and enslavement, um, but I'm trying to connect it to the contemporary world in which Morrison was writing, in which um, Black women uh, were protesting their sexual and reproductive exploitation. So, I, you know, it's a great story. I didn't really know um, how to think about that ice pick. And I was uh, listening to a talk by a colleague and friend of mine, Emily Thuma. Uh, talking about the Joan Little case, and she flashed on the screen um, a photograph of um, a T-shirt that she had found in an archival box um, saying Power to the Ice Pick, which was a T-shirt worn by a protester (coughs) at one of the Free Joanne Little marches. Joan Little went by many names, and even the spelling of her name is different, so if I'm slipping among them, uh, it's Joan Joanne depending what you're reading and um, and so I learned about this um, use of the ice pick in that case and it, it sparked the connection to the beloved novel and led to my reinterpretation of that um, final scene in the novel in this direction.
1: So rounding out a really rich conversation conversation about your book. Um, in later chapters of the book, you heed Sadia Hartman's observation that to tell the lies of enslaved women often requires inserting oneself at the intersection of, fici- of fiction and the historical, the fictive and the historical rather, excuse me. And so your analysis that you, you know, alluded to previously in thinking of the dystopian novels of Octavia Butler, uh, speculative fiction, film and other creative mediums really brought to life for me the interpretive genius of your work, and made many of the connections you set out in the introduction of your book about Black feminism's philosophy of history and its multiple idioms concretized in my mind. And so to close out our conversation, I was hoping that you could mention perhaps your analysis of Butler's work and the other novels and films that you discuss in later chapters of the book and the ways in which they helped inform your arguments about the constellation of the enslaved past and the biocapitalist present.
2: It's a big, it's a big question because the book is really divided into two parts, and the the first part of the book is about what we've been talking about, which is the ways in which um, Black feminism um, produces a philosophy of history that connects the enslaved past to the biocapitalist present around the figure of the um, the reproductive body and its racialized um, exploitation and the way in which that's thought about in fiction and, and, and by historians and others and legal scholars. And in the second half of the book, I'm um, turning more to the question of um, neoliberalism and the, the ways in which um, one of the things that I believe characterizes uh, the neoliberal period, the neoliberal moment is the erasure or the disavow of the relevance of the history of slavery to the present moment in which we're living. And so I I use fictions that are produced in the context of neoliberalism and read them uh, as meditations on this process of erasure. And I I think that the work of Octavia Butler um, across really her entire corpus um, is is just a beautiful example of how um, slavery is animated as um a sort of guiding uh episteme uh for understanding human exploitation, and at the same time it never appears in the guises that are most familiar to us as um you know the slavery of, of black people in the context of uh Atlantic slavery. Uh it does do that in her one novel, Kindred, but even there. Uh, It's a complex time travel novel in which there's a shuttling between the past and the present that takes place. Uh, But in other stories by her and in other writings by her, um, the enslaved past uh, emerges as often as a question of interspecies exploitation um, of the reproductive capacities uh, of one species by another species. And even in some of the interviews with Butler herself, uh, she would deny the connection to slavery, and so I, I basically am making an argument um, for reading some of this uh, speculative fiction um, as speaking to uh, the disavowal of, of of slavery in the context of neoliberalism, the disavowal of um, racism as animating contemporary capitalism, um, and uh, and sort of looking at the ways in which texts, uh, especially literary texts written in this moment, um, really allow us a window onto this process of the erasure of slavery. Because it's not to say that Octavia Butler didn't think slavery was absolutely key. I think she understood that totally and completely. But she wrote novels that allowed us to explore the ways in which Human exploitation is always, in some ways, grounded in and through the the history of slavery, um, even when that is the denied context um, for that exploitation. So it's a it's a second part of the argument that's quite complicated, and it's it, in some ways it's an argument about the evisceration of what Robin Kelly, the historian, would call the freedom dreams of Black feminism. And it's about how hard it is to recuperate um, the insurgency of enslaved women, um, both because of the problems of the archive, but also um, because of the political moment in which that project of recuperation might be enacted. And so I I view speculative fiction as a sort of window onto the processes by which slavery is treated um, in contemporary uh, biocapitalism and racial capitalism.
1: If I may ask you one final question, um, what what is the largest takeaway you hope that readers of your book and listeners of our podcast will have after reading your book?
2: I just get one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, I think it's that um, slavery endures as an animating, uh, you know, idea in contemporary capitalism, and that unless we come to terms with this, um, we will not really be able to understand um, the racialized and gendered exploitation that uh, makes contemporary capitalism go. And while surrogacy isn't, uh, you know, a widespread practice, although it's an increasingly widespread practice, um, it it, it's, it functions as a, a, um, a lens or a heuristic device that allows us to understand um, the ways in which, uh, you know, gendered, sexualized, and racialized um, forms of exploitation that have their roots, their epistemic roots in slavery, continue to animate um, the operations of capitalism today. And so it's that thinking back and forth across time, which um, necessitates constellating the the past with the present in the interest of the future. And then it's, um, you know, that, that idea that we have to think historically if we want to understand our present
1: moment. I wanted to thank you, Professor Weinbaum, for taking the time to be on the show today. I really enjoyed speaking with you.
2: It's been really fun. And what an astute reader of the book you are. (laughs) I really appreciated your (laughs) summaries of some of the arguments.
1: Thank you so much.